This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. We're on season two, episode 17, and this is our second episode of our last three, where we have Aaron LaFuente on from Denton's Law. Aaron, of course, is a regular at Business Career College sessions. I always like to get the estate lawyer in to address these issues. So two episodes ago, she talked about incapacity planning specific to business owners. In this episode, she's going to talk about capacity and issues related to capacity. At the end of her interview, which we're going to roll into momentarily here, we're going to go through how a financial advisor can take what Erin has done and turn that into something useful for practice purposes. This episode will be good for life insurance credits in Alberta, no accident sickness credits for this episode. We will also have ethics credits in the province of Saskatchewan, and this episode will be approved for your professional responsibility credit for those of you who report to FP Canada. The color for today's episode is blue. The color for today's episode is blue. Okay, let's roll into Aaron's interview. And following that, I'm going to go through some, I think, fairly detailed notes with respect to some takeaways for the financial advisor, financial planner who is giving this a listen. Okay, we're joined again today by Aaron LaFuente. Aaron, you may recall from a previous episode, is a lawyer practicing in the wills and estates area at Denton's Law here in Edmonton. That's right, Aaron? Yes. And long experience. You've been since 2001 practicing, I think, almost exclusively in the area of wills and estates. Yes. And you've been both a litigator and a solicitor in that time? Yes, that's kind of the beauty of my practice is I do the planning and I also do uh, the unwinding and unraveling things of when things do go wrong. I always like this because I know that with that litigator background, you see what happens if the soliciting side, if the drafting isn't done well, right? Absolutely. And actually, I started off as a litigator and it was the opposite. I went back and realized I really am not in a position to be saying what should happen if I don't know how to do it in the first place. So then I went back and started honing some skills as a planner. Interesting. We're going to chat today about capacity. And this is something that I find a very interesting topic. It's something that I know financial advisors and financial planners wrestle with a fair bit. And it sounds like you have some interesting 
capacity decisions, including one that was recently publicly reported. I think you described it as a sort of he said, she said scenario. And can you give us a little background on this case, where it's at and so forth? Yeah. So I was involved in a case that was decided about a year and a half ago. It related to testamentary capacity, you know, really, really interesting fact scenario. The decision itself was about whether or not the case should be summarily dismissed. So it wasn't completely on capacity, but the court had to comment on whether there was enough suggestion that capacity was an issue that the case should continue. In this case, the testator had done a will a few years prior to the one that was at issue and had done as she had in all previous wills, and that was to give everything equally between her kids. And I think it's important to understand that in Alberta, so long as your kids are capable, there isn't an obligation to provide for your children. But in this particular case, there was evidence from the testator's background from, and actually also from her sister that treating her children equally had been something that was important to her her whole life. You know, that quintessential mom who was sitting up at Christmas making sure that the gifts were equal to each of the kids so that nobody would feel unsatisfied on Christmas morning. And with that background and with the prior will, in mind, it was very interesting that uh, not in a time where she was suffering from some increased mental capacity issues, she did a new will which substantially favored one child and that child's daughter, so a grandchild, completely left out all of the other grandchildren, left out one child completely and gave her remaining child only 10%. So where it had gone from a third, a third, a third, it had changed to 50% for one child, 40% for that child's daughter, and 10% for one of the children. And then one child left out. So a dramatic departure from anything she'd done previously. And so the two children who were left out had commenced a claim to say mom was suffering from a capacity issue when she did this will. The facts in this case were extraordinary because you really had two very good cases on both sides. On the one side, the lawyer who had done the will had done an excellent job, had recognized there might be a capacity issue at play, had documented it well, documented his discussions with the testator, and had even gone got a doctor's opinion. I would say nine times out of 10, facing a case like that, I would tell my clients, we're not going to challenge this will. It looks like it's pretty much a slam dunk. And I can tell you, taking capacity cases where I'm challenging a will are not my favorite to take. They're hard. They're hard to win. But in this case, the facts were extraordinary. From my side, and I hadn't made it clear, I acted on behalf of the sons who were challenging the will. On my side, they said, you know, we have all this evidence neighbors and friends, the sister of the deceased, as well as their own evidence of a period of time for about a year or two years right before this will was done, that the testator was really starting to decline. She was starting not to trust the people in her life, accuse neighbors of stealing, accuse neighbors of coming into her house and rearranging things, situations involving trying to desperately keep cats out of her yard to the point where it was a problem from an animal humane perspective. And all of this was going on. Most interestingly, about a month before the will was done, the deceased had taken a trip to Europe with one of the sons, the son actually who was completely left out of the will. 
and he had accompanied her on this trip. He had done so because she had gone on a trip the year before and it had really not gone well because she needed to be supervised. When they came back to Canada from the trip, actually the customs officer had, according to my client, had remarked that it was not appropriate they'd taken her out of the country because she didn't really know where she'd been. She was confused, hard to enter back into Canada. And so in this background, when they came back from the trip, the son decided she needed to go for a capacity assessment, but wasn't the one who took her. And the daughter took her. And so I think that there is that, always that interplay about who's there when you take them to the doctor, what is the doctor informed of? So the son didn't have an opportunity to really tell the doctor what you know, had happened. And perhaps mom's health troubles were downplayed a bit. In any event, she does the will. And in doing the will, she tells the lawyer, who of course has no reason to know that this isn't the case, that the son that's about to be left out has been estranged from her for some time. And she really doesn't have anything to do with him and she doesn't see him and she's angry with him. And the other son's been away and has been living out of province. Neither of which these two things were true. And so the motivation as described to the lawyer for leaving them out of the will was that they really weren't involved in her life. And that is justification that in, you know, a lot of scenarios would be enough reason to say, I'm choosing not to leave them in. They're not involved in my life. And as a lawyer, something I've heard time and time again, but in this case, it wasn't true. And so we had this situation in which the woman had suffered from delusions that were actually impacting her relationships with her family members, and then were making it so that she didn't know what she should do. In this particular case, the judge did decide that our case would end up proceeding. The parties were able to resolve everything after that. But it was a really interesting scenario because we started off with a lawyer and a doctor who felt she had capacity, but a lawyer and a doctor who can't know what everyone else in the family knows. And it was only evident that she had some issues when you deal with what the family knows. And I've come across that time and time again over the years, meeting with clients, maybe going into the meeting, assuming that the person had capacity. And then sometimes it's an hour into a conversation before you realize what they think to be true isn't true. And until that moment, you thought there were no issues. So that's a good indication of how difficult this topic is to try to really understand and how an advisor is faced with a difficult task because you can only know what you know and your experience with that person. So I get that there's no desire here to sort of badmouth the other lawyer. Like you said, that that person did what they ought to have done. Yep. They drafted a good will. They used the facts that were presented to them, right? Those are all positives. In a case like that, where you know, there's facts that are being sort of withheld, and it sounds maybe like willfully withheld by the one child, how do you circumvent that? How do you overcome that challenge? Yeah, that's a really difficult one. I think those are red flags that as a lawyer that you look for. As I said, I, in this particular case, I would say that this lawyer truly did do the utmost best possible to try to resolve those problems. Some of the things that I would do is ensure that I had multiple meetings with this person, multiple meetings where the other child who I might be worried about exerting some influence is not present. 
You know, I have experienced situations in which people feel they have to do something because that person is very much a part of their life and they're worried that if they don't do what they want, the person will withdraw the care that they provide. So it can be really important to make them believe that, you know, they're free to tell you what they really want, that you're not going to give that information to the person, that nobody needs to know what the will says right now. Sometimes a concern is that that person's going to know if I put her brother in and she didn't want me to, she's going to know and she's going to be angry. So providing some support that that information does not have to be made public can be good. There is a famous case on influence that way. And forgive me, but I can't recall the name of it at the moment, but we teach it in our wills and estates class at the U of A. And in that case, a brother-in-law got his sister-in-law to make a change to a will to include his wife back into it. But it was done on the basis that it was very clear that if she didn't, then they were no longer going to provide care for her. And so by doing that, it may have been what she wanted to do. She wanted to gift that sister, but she didn't do it because it was her own free decision. She did it because it was really the decision of someone else that was just speaking through her. So that is something that you need to be mindful of and you need to be very careful that you are, you know, dealing with them individually and not forgetting sometimes that people can be pressured into a certain thing because the role of caregiver is, as we know, particularly in this day and age, is a vital one. And the threat of potentially not having that caregiver can be enough to make anybody change their mind about decision making. So regardless of the case, but you've got a, an elderly person, presumably, who shows up with their caregiver there. They're going to write a will. You want them to write a will, right? Like that's why they're there to see you, but they're together, right? So you've got, you know, mom and daughter or mom and son or whatever it is. Do you have any advice for sort of tactfully separating the two for getting mom alone for a period? Yeah, I would say I don't like to take the tap that they can never be with them because it's not unusual for people to be afraid to meet new people, to be uncomfortable in situations. So I think it can be a very good plan is to let them come in with their loved one. Most loved ones aren't out to try to influence anybody inappropriately. They are there as a support. So I like to invite the support in and have that conversation, meet them and then get to know the testator on a more one-to-one basis and have them grow comfortable with me before I ask the other person to leave. So I think that's kind of a first thing. And I think advisors might find that that's helpful too, because it can be very scary to put yourself out there when you don't know the person and you're dealing with something that's legal and feels very formal. But tactfully, one way that I do it is by saying, listen, it, it protects the testator, but it also protects the potential beneficiary. And so I'll say to them, you know what, and just to make sure that everything's okay, I'm going to ask you to leave and I have to have some of this meeting alone, but give them the understanding that if they are going to be a beneficiary, it's beneficial to them if they are not there for part of the conversation. And I find most people are comfortable with that. And to the extent that they weren't comfortable, that's going to be raising more red flags with me. I do think there's a few things that would be concerns. So if someone's coming to you and they're doing a will or planning or a change to a beneficiary designation called into an insurance advisor that is really different, a big departure from what they've done before, that's a red flag where you want to start asking some more questions. Any significant changes should heighten your sense of awareness. 
So the types of questions you ask here, how do you ask questions that are useful, that'll help you get to the bottom of this without maybe seeming condescending or repetitive? Yeah, that is a challenge because, I mean, the nature of, for a will, understanding whether someone has capacity is, you have to know whether or not they understand what it is to make a will. You have to know that they understand the property that they have, you know, what do they have to dispose of? They have to understand who their family are or who the natural people who might be expected to receive something are. And those are important things that they have to understand. They have to know what they're doing and be able to kind of work all those factors in together. So with all of that in mind, there's a really a lot to cover. But I find that as in anything, a conversational approach is the best way to go at the outset just have a casual conversation about, you know, how things are going, who's looking after them, you know, where are they living, general conversations about how they're doing their financing, that kind of thing. Trying to keep the conversations light and conversational, I think really helps. But at the end of the day, you do have to get down to that nitty gritty. And, you know, it's not as though I expect everybody to know what they have in their bank to the exact penny, because that's not realistic. And it's not realistic for people who don't have any reason to have an incapacity. But as long as they have a good sense of where is their money, who could they ask, who are their advisors, those are the kinds of questions that you want to be talking about. And if they are doing something that's a change, so if it's a beneficiary designation, for example, on an insurance policy, or it's a big change to the will, why? You know, and I think it's important to ask okay, so you're leaving John out of this will. Why have you chosen to leave John out? And have that information come to you. And at the end of the day, sometimes you may learn down the road that that wasn't necessarily information coming from a sound mind, but you don't know that in the moment. It's just important that you document it. So what happens when you have somebody where there does, like the capacity should raise its head, the person is not able to answer that why question, or if they don't have a coherent story about what they're trying to accomplish, do you turn them away? How do you, how do you not, again, sour a relationship here? Yeah, those are really hard questions for you know, estate lawyers to deal with. I think that we ultimately uh, have an obligation to prepare documents, unless it's the very clearest state that the person cannot do them because ultimately it isn't me Uh, just just as in that case I was talking about that lawyer believed that that person had capacity and to be fair it hasn't been fully decided whether she did or she didn't because that's going to be decided by a judge and so it isn't my job as an estate lawyer to take away their opportunity to do the documents it's my job to do them as clearly as I can often that would be that I want to refer them to get some medical advice as to whether or not they have capacity. So that might be something that I do is send them out for an assessment to see if I can get some insight into how they're doing. It is important to make sure that one always remembers that under the law, we are presumed to have capacity. It's not the opposite. You know, we don't all of a sudden get presumed not to have capacity because we hit some magical age. There are 50-year-olds without capacity and there are 90-year-olds who are sharp and can do a will. So I think you got to be really careful about where there's any concern, you know, making sure that you obtain the instructions directly from the testator and confirm them with them privately is important. Consider whether you think capacity might be an issue and if that's the case, 
get some advice from a medical professional. I think it's important to remember that capacity is one of those things that can kind of go up and down when people are suffering from dementia-related illnesses. Sometimes they have good days and bad days, and so try to make sure you catch them on a better day. Document that. If at all possible, it's really good if you can have the medical assessment done on the same day as the will or the day that you took instructions. Because of those good days and bad days, that can be important. And just make sure, you know, as a lawyer, as an advisor, really keeping good notes of the process and what you did is important. At the end of the day, I'm going to lean towards letting the person give me the instructions and doing the will. And if ultimately they don't have capacity and a judge down the road decides that, at least I haven't been the one who's taken away their opportunity to do it. Because if you do review the cases, you know, as we do when we teach at the U of A in this area of law, there's a lot of cases when you start reading them, you think, oh, there's no way there's going to be capacity in this case. And then there is. And then you'll read another case, you'll assume, of course, that person's fine. And they're not. And so the moral of that story is just to say that it, it is ultimately up to the court. And we can't know. So my role as a lawyer is to take those instructions and give that a person the opportunity to do their planning. Would you sort of scale back on complexity where you think there might be a capacity issue? Yeah, I think that, well, certainly the, in the language that I choose to speak with somebody, you're going to always tailor that to what that person understands. And so I think there is that. I do think that the more difficult, the more complex the things that are happening, the harder it is going to be to show that they had the understanding. So, you know, to the extent that it's possible to do something more simple, I think that's probably you know, a reasonable choice to take. But at the end of the day, they have capacity or they don't, it's not going to be, maybe they could do this, but they couldn't do that. The capacity to do a will is going to be yes or no. Now, I know though capacity is sort of a sliding scale, right? Yeah. So we have different tests for different areas of the law. So, you know, capacity to give a gift, capacity to enter into a contract, capacity to get married. For that, you really only have to have an understanding of the nature of the marriage contract that you're entering into. And that is maybe a lower bar than other things. But capacity is one of those things that affects our daily life and any number of decisions. So medical decisions, whether or not I can gift property before I die, before I have my will comes into effect, whether I can make financial decisions, medical decisions, those are all capacity issues that come into play. And so capacity is not only dealt with in the context of wills, but also in the context of whether or not we can make personal, medical, and financial decisions during our lifetime. But again, we're always presumed to have it until the contrary is shown. And I get this, and this maybe is where your role is a little different from the financial advisor, right? Because as you say, you can do this up. You can sort of give the, let's say, benefit of the doubt with respect to capacity. Whereas if I'm a financial advisor and a client comes to see me today, and today would be a great example, right? Middle of May in the wake of this whole COVID thing, and client has a modest riff, for example, right? A few hundred thousand dollars sitting in a RIF, and that amount is material to their ability to sustain themselves. Client comes to see me today and says, you know, I want a, I want a hundred thousand dollar withdrawal from my RIF. And the advisor doesn't do enough capacity assessment. The advisor doesn't think about capacity enough, just lets that withdrawal happen. You know, this is potentially a mistake that has immediate implications, right? You can't sort of wait until years later and, and let the courts sort it out. Do you have a thought there? 
I think it's a matter of just you need to be asking those questions. I think it's important, hopefully in advance, you, you have a sense of whether or not they have power of attorney and personal directive in place. So, you know, you ask the questions if there's a consideration as to whether or not uh, they're really understanding things. I think finding out if they've had any current medical testing, uh, is their power of attorney or personal directive invoke would be reasonable questions to ask. I think that you know, it, it's a really difficult situation because bad decisions don't necessarily make one incapable. We all demonstrate that all the time, that we make bad financial decisions, bad investments. It didn't mean we were incapable when we did them. And I think we have to be careful to not just assume that because someone's older, that they don't have decision-making capacity. So I think it's a matter of asking questions, significantly a matter of documenting your file. That's the number one thing that you can do. What questions did you ask? What information did you have? But if you do know that there is a decision maker or supporter in place based on a power of attorney or personal directive, finding out whether those documents are invoked is vitally important. I know lawyers take incredibly diligent notes in your client meetings, right? That's the goal, yes. <laughs> this is by default, right? So I'm in my mid-40s, right? And let's say I come to you today to get a will done. Would your notes have any reflection about my capacity? Is that something that would show up in there? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a, a thing that varies from lawyer to lawyer. I think it's a good practice to always have that in our notes that you've considered that issue. But to the extent that the issue becomes relevant or prevalent in that particular file, then from my perspective, then my note taking will increase exponentially. So if I have even for a moment given a he some hesitation to whether or not you have capacity. Maybe it's not a capacity issue, but you're just doing something that I feel is a bit strange or out of line with what you've normally done. Then my note-taking role is going to just increase. I'm going to want to protect myself, of course, and the fact that I do hundreds and hundreds of these 20 years down the road, if someone's going to ask me about you and whether you had capacity that day, I'm not going to remember, but I am going to be able to pull my file and look at it and say, okay, well, I asked Jason this, this, and this, and, and I satisfied myself that he had capacity. So my own notes, if I, particularly if I had any concern that you uh, didn't have capacity, and then I satisfied myself that you did, is going to run through that whole you know, gamut of where I was feeling and how I ended up there, ultimately concluding with something to the fact that when we signed the will, I believed you had capacity. Again, I'm not the decision maker, but that's evidence I'd be able to give the judge 20 years down the road. That makes a ton of sense. I think the advisor, the financial advisor or financial planner here has an advantage that they often don't think about. And that is they're seeing their clients every year or some regularity. So and I think that if they're paying attention, they have maybe an advantage. Like a lot of times you're seeing somebody for the first time, right? It's, yeah. we don't want Will's clients to be recurring clients necessarily. Right? <laughs> no, not usually. <laughs> no. And that's where I've always advised like my students to, to do that, to make a habit of, regardless of the age of the client, when they come to see you, you say, yeah, I checked Capacity it doesn't have to be anything big, right? Like I had a normal conversation with that person. Yeah, capacity was good, right? Yeah, I think that that's a, a case where you're uniquely positioned to be able to recognize red flags probably pretty quickly. 
because you're going to know that person. You're going to know their normal manner of speaking, their normal risk level, um, how, what kind of tolerance they have for risk. And if that's suddenly changing, if they're suddenly uh, speaking about things in a way that they don't normally do, you're going to be uniquely able to recognize that there's been a change. And then at that change, maybe that's the time where you're looking for some medical confirmation, some confirmation that the power of attorney maybe hasn't been invoked. Those are times when you'll be uniquely able to, to identify that there'd been a change. You're right. Sometimes lawyers, we, we can't know that and we don't know what their ordinary way of being is, but we get clues because often they have prior planning. So even though I've never met with someone before, they've come to see me and they're, you know, they have their last will and it was, you know, everything to my husband. And then if my husband passes everything to my kids and now five years later, they're coming to see me and it's, um, I don't want to give anything to two out of three of those kids or, or to none of my kids. Okay, but let's have a sense of why that might be. Now, just circling way back to the case you started us off with, and I, this is maybe a curiosity more than anything, but when people are trying to challenge a will like this, do the dollar amounts matter or is it more like I was left out and I feel like I should have gotten something? Or is it that you think the dollar amounts matter, but people will never say that, right? Where's the trade-off there? I would say for the feelings of being left out and unfair, I'm not sure that the dollar amounts matter. And unfortunately, our feelings uh, of being left out and being mistreated vis-a-vis our siblings often will dictate the first steps we're taking in litigation. So you will sometimes see these challenges on estates that really aren't large enough to justify the challenge from a cost perspective. That is one of the areas I I think that lawyers have a very important role, as we do in all estate litigation, is just to always ensure that we're acting reasonably in the context. So it is unreasonable to spend six months in court over who gets the piano. Like, that's unreasonable. Getting our clients to see that that's unreasonable is sometimes the challenge. But it is something that we as estate lawyers are constantly assessing and hoping to be able to have our clients assess with us is that, is it reasonable for us to continue? Are the steps that I'm taking reasonable? And am I making a reasonable effort to try to solve this litigation at every stage that it's possible? And so most of us in the estate litigation bar are always trying to consider, is there an opportunity to settle? Because that is very often best for the parties. Estate litigation is a challenge primarily because In most litigation, there is a motion tied to the incident, but not between the parties generally. You know, if you get in a car accident, we're all very upset about what happened in that car accident, but we don't know each other before or after. And we don't carry with us all these intense emotions. When we're in a state litigation, it's all informed by things that have happened over the last 50 years of the party's lives. You know, who got piano lessons, who already had their wedding paid for, who got a loan and hasn't paid it back, you know, who mom loved best or didn't love, you know, perception wise. And that can be the hardest part of a state litigation to manage. And so it's important for state lawyers to, to really try to help clients work through those emotions and think about it as a legal case, not generally a good idea to fight things on principle. I find when people fight things on principle, they don't usually end up winning no matter the result. The court is never going to satisfy the principle that was in your head when you set down this path, right? 
<laughs> well, and unfortunately, even when they do end up siding on the side of your principal, when you get the final tally of what it cost, often you're less satisfied than you thought you would have been. I find this is something that people who have never gone to court are often surprised at, but like a costs award is not really a costs award, right? If you can comment on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is such an important concept. You know, we hear, oh, the other party's going to pay my costs. First of all, we should never assume that the other party's going to pay anything because the judge ultimately is going to decide and it may not be the way you think it is. But even when we are successful and we get costs, on the whole and in the ordinary situation in Alberta, they're not what you paid your lawyer. That is an exception that sometimes is allowed, but it's rare. We have a thing uh, called Schedule C that lists what you get, and it's, it's a fraction of what you've spent. So ultimately, you have to factor in what you've paid uh, and are continuing to pay when you're considering what's reasonable. And then you also have to factor into the fact that you might not be successful, and ultimately the judge might award costs against you. So I would say that in litigation, costs should never be far from the discussion. You know, every step should consider the cost effect of what, what you're choosing to do or not to do. So I think these, and, and I know, again, you're a big fan of proactive planning, right? So you, you talk about these costs and talk about not getting you know, full satisfaction, how to go into court, really, no matter what, probably, right? So what are the steps that we should be taking in advance to address potential capacity concerns? I think one important thing, and we haven't really talked about it because we've always just presupposed today that someone's meeting with a lawyer, but see a lawyer. You know, um, unfortunately, a lot of people like to try to write down their will themselves, and that certainly isn't going to help because you're not going to have the benefit of the lawyer's advice and perhaps information that can be given to the court about your state of mind. So seeing a lawyer is a first step. Ensuring that you see a lawyer who practices in the area of state planning is a, a second good step. You know, making sure there's good notes, having someone assess the person is a good idea, Ultimately, you want to just do as much as you can to document where things were at at that time in order to try to preserve the integrity of the will that's being done. Any uh, last minute thoughts about the role of the financial advisor, how they can get a lawyer involved at the right time, about capacity issues in general, or for the advisor maybe has capacity questions? I think that ideally it would be great if you throughout the process, you know, maybe at the beginning of the process, tried to ensure that they had somebody in place for uh, doing planning. I think a key thing as an advisor to try to make sure has happened is, is incapacity planning in place? Because ultimately the worst thing that will happen is that you're going to be getting instructions and it's clear that you cannot take them but that person does not have a designated decision maker in place under a power of attorney, now we have a real problem. So I think an ounce of prevention is your best method, and that's to ensure that you've had those conversations in advance and said, hey, have you got your planning done? Make those introductions and get that done. After that, I would say, you know, note-taking is very important. Ask questions, make observations, as you said, based on your relationship and to the extent that there needs to be some outside advice in terms of a physician, you know, try to get that advice. That's excellent. And, you know, I think this is important as well to make sure that we have 
address this. And I think there's just a ton of liability here for folks who don't address this far in advance and don't really pay attention to the potential speed bumps. So I appreciate you taking some time today to talk about that. And I appreciate all the outreach you do to try and make sure people have their capacity issues and their final planning issues sorted out. Thanks very much, Erin. Any last minute words here? No, thank you for the opportunity. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, you can hear that Aaron has dealt with some fairly weighty issues around capacity and the requirements to determine whether or not somebody had capacity, even some scenarios where maybe her and another lawyer might not 100% agree on whether somebody has capacity. And this is a point that I want to emphasize. Capacity is not a an on or off switch. It's not a black or white. Capacity is a matter of a sliding scale. And we give different sort of levels of capacity. So you hear Aaron talk about this, that the capacity required to get married is a very low bar. So somebody can get married when their capacity is right at the sort of bottom end of the scale. Whereas the capacity for something like maybe a more complicated investment decision is going to be a much higher bar. That means that everybody who is in the business of dealing with people where there might be a question of capacity has some requirement to do some degree of capacity assessment. Now, what follows is really based on uh, sort of a mix of different items, uh, some best practices, some discussions with folks like Aaron. I'll refer in a moment to the FP Canada Standards of Professional Responsibility and we'll see what sort of guidance we get here in dealing with clients where there might be a capacity concern. And really the tools that I'm going to present here or the items that I'm going to discuss are more about the advisor or the planner protecting their clients and themselves. So the idea here is to build a set of tools that will ensure that 
you don't take instructions in a situation where a client has a capacity that's diminished beyond the point where they should be providing instructions and also that you don't find yourself in trouble later on for either taking instructions when you ought not to have or for not taking instructions when you should have. Both of those things could be a potential source of liability. There is a little bit of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Now, I think that it's in your best interest to have both excellent notes and excellent policies and procedures. And this is a place where I do find some deficiencies around policies and procedures. I find it's very rare that I will ask a room full of financial advisors who in the room has a policy or procedure for dealing with capacity questions. Very rare that a hand goes up in response to that question, or if it does, it might be maybe uh, two to five percent of the folks in the room will have such a thing. And as we know, if you ever end up in court dealing with a question like this, a big part of what's going to be material in this decision around whether there's liability for the advisor will be, do you have notes that substantiate the decision you made? Did you have a, a standard practice? Did the client understand that practice? Now, I just want to take a moment to refer to the FP Canada Standards of Professional Responsibility. There is nothing actually explicitly in the Standards of Professional Responsibility that refers directly to a client's capacity to make a decision or not. However, there are several items here that do point to a requirement for a financial planner to address capacity issues. And we can start with the principles, the eight principles of the Code of Ethics. So very first, the duty of loyalty. The duty of loyalty says that you place the client's interests ahead of the planner's interests and of all other interests. Well, that means not taking instructions from a client where the client is not possessed of their capacity and where those instructions are going to clearly cause harm to the client. Now, that being said, it's still the client that you're dealing with, and people are going to do things that are not in their financial best interest. We can't just put the brakes on a client making a decision that might harm them. People are allowed to make questionable decisions. If a client who is fully possessed of their capacity comes to me and says, Jason, I want to buy a boat and that boat is going to cost me X number of dollars. And I say, well, look, you're going to use that money for your retirement. You told me three years ago you needed X number of dollars for retirement. If you buy a boat, you're going to ruin your retirement plan. And I say, you cannot take that money out. Well, that's not appropriate either. There has to be a degree of trade-off here. Uh, people do have the right to make decisions that are not in their best interest. So it's not just a question of whether the decision would harm this person or not. It's a question of whether it would harm them and whether they have the capacity to make that decision. There's a philosophical concept that applies this right for people to make their own decisions, even when those decisions might not be perfect. And it, it really applies mostly to caregivers, but I think we can see the relevance for financial planners here. The philosophical concept is the dignity of risk. And that's the idea that 
even though we might look at something somebody is doing and say that's not in that person's best interests, we still allow them to make that decision. So it's not just about whether a decision is going to harm somebody. It's also to some extent about whether that decision is made when that person understands the consequences of it. The next of the principles we'll look at is objectivity. And objectivity says that you have to really be able to step back from the circumstances, look at them objectively, and say, how can I best help my client in this circumstance? This is part of where I really like having written policy, a written procedure, something we can follow that will guide us to make a decision when we rely exclusively on our sort of in-the-moment decision, we sometimes end up with a subconscious bias that can ruin that objectivity. Now, that being said, I expect that the people listening to this are working on tools to get better at that decision-making. So I'm not saying your subconscious is necessarily faulty, but we should recognize the possibility that it might be. The next principle we look at is that of competence, and that's the idea that you're continually working towards getting better. And again, a big part of that is just listening to content like this, absorbing content like this, that should make it easier for you to stay on top of your game and to be able to provide advice to clients that matches with current best practices. It's the benefit of going to somebody like Erin in the legal profession where she would have probably more exposure than most of us to these capacity questions and saying, well, what in her best practices can I apply to my own best practices? Uh, then we have the principle of fairness. And one of the things I think we can do that shows up in the fairness principle is when we sit down with a client in our initial engagement, so as part of your letter of engagement or whatever engagement process you use, to say, look, client, here's how I will deal with capacity issues. And now part of this is also not demonstrating ageism. And this is where we should recognize that capacity is not exclusively a problem for the elderly. I think a lot of times when we approach this initially, we think about dementia. However, it is entirely possible that a younger person could also experience a capacity issue that might happen because of an acquired brain injury or because somebody is changing their medications or has mistimed their medications, something like that. We should not limit these discussions around capacity to elderly clients. And even the concept of dementia. Dementia is not a condition that is limited to elderly folks. The principle of confidentiality, this showed up in Erin's conversation as well, where she talked about the requirement to have a conversation with the client alone, at least for a period. But if we have the client's consent to do so, we can lean on a second party, a caregiver, a family member, whatever that person is, to help us out here with some capacity. It might be the client has capacity, but with that caregiver sitting in the room with them, their ability to understand might improve. Now, there is some risk there. We have to pay attention for the possibility of undue influence as well. Our next principle, that of diligence, is also useful to recognize here 
And this is the idea that when a client is looking for some sort of service or an outcome, that we address it in a timely fashion. We don't sit on issues for an unlimited amount of time. And this is where there's a little bit of pressure on that we have to pay attention to. Client comes to see me, I'm concerned about a capacity issue. I can't just let the problem sort of go away. I have to address it in a timely fashion. And to some extent, that might mean communicating with the client about what my particular concerns are. If I'm going to have a delay built in, I had best have a way to talk to the client about that delay. Finally, the eighth principle here is that of professionalism. And again, this would just involve expressing concerns to the client up front, being open in your letter of engagement, and giving the client the opportunity to understand the issue at hand. If you think there's a capacity concern or if you're regularly assessing capacity, it's still an obligation here, at least to some extent, to bring that client into what's happening. The number for today's episode is five. The number for today's episode is five. using some of the tools that Aaron talked us through and also applying some of the FP Canada standards of professional responsibility items, we can think about what might go into a procedure slash policy for dealing with capacity issues. Now, I think that it's incumbent on everybody to sort of build this out to match their own respective process, how you interact with your clients. Some people, for example, are going to have a more technical focus to their meeting. Some people are going to have an agenda-driven meeting. Some people are going to have a more casual or conversational type of meeting. I don't think it really matters which approach you take. I think it's important that we consider, again, both that risk to the client and the risk to the advisor slash planner. So the first that I would look at in a written policy or procedure is to say, when do I do a capacity assessment? Is this done at the beginning of every meeting? Is it an informal process that I apply following every meeting where I'm simply going to write down what my thoughts about that person's capacity were? Do I make a point of doing this on my annual reviews? What's the timing for this? Once we've established that, we should think about, am I doing this for every client or would there be certain triggers that I might have? Would there be a a certain type of client where I would be more or less likely to assess capacity? Or would there be, maybe I base this on the answers to my first three questions. I ask the client the first three questions. I get fully coherent answers. I say, that's perfect. I don't have to worry about it. I sort of go on a decision tree. I say, no need to proceed, or based on those first three questions, I'm getting answers that I'm not necessarily linking up to a full sense that that client has good capacity. Do I now have to focus a little bit more on capacity? Do I maybe ask some more pointed questions about capacity? Do I think about asking the client maybe about their current frame of mind or 
ask them maybe something more basic, like how their drive to the office was today or something like that. When I'm assessing capacity, is this entirely based on my sort of field? Do I say, yes, the client has sufficient capacity to deal with financial planning issues? Or am I going to be more granular than that in assessing capacity? Do I have to think about maybe a scale here? I'm a big fan, and maybe it's my military background of a five by five scale. We used to use this in testing the quality of communications, but I could say, how much uh, sophistication does the client have? That is, how complex an issue can they deal with? And I might compare that to their level of comprehension. That is, when I present an issue to them, what do they sort of send back to me? What's their feedback look like when I present something to that client? So there's different ways we could do this. And unfortunately, I, I have looked around a little bit, and I haven't found really good tools for the financial planner to sort of present client capacity. So maybe something for me to develop at some point down the road. We'll see how that looks. Something else that we should be addressing in our policies and procedures around capacity would be any sort of training. So do you regularly update your training? And that training might focus on the specific types of clients you deal with. So for example, if you deal with a lot of aging clients, you might look to events hosted by organizations like CARP, what formerly was the Canadian Association of Retired Persons, now just CARP, or other similar seniors advocacy groups. You'll find that there are capacity issues addressed in, in their meetings sometimes, or do you make a point of talking to lawyers, or you might look at attending courses leading to the elder planning counselor designation or the certified professional counselor on aging, that type of thing might be useful here. We should think about what goes into our letter of engagement. How do we talk to the client in the engagement process about capacity issues? Warning the client that this is something that we are going to deal with if it comes to a head probably meets that professionalism requirement that I had talked about before. So you say, in your engagement process, for example, client, if I become aware that there might be a capacity concern, here's how I'll address it. Maybe I'll do a more robust questioning around that. If that robust questioning doesn't satisfy me and I believe that you still might have a capacity concern, Maybe we'll rebook the meeting for X number of days or a week later, something like that, and delay taking instructions until that time. That would be especially a concern if you have any sort of securities business with that client. So it's something that I think if we present to clients up front, it reduces some of the risk down the road where their client says, oh, I didn't know this was how you're going to uh, react if I showed some sort of diminished capacity. So again, that would be that element of professionalism in dealing with the client. Okay, lots there. I hope that the conversation with Aaron was useful and I hope my comments afterwards were useful as well. Like I said, it's rare that I find somebody who has a developed policy or procedure. And I should mention the other thing we would look at here is if you end up in court or in front of any other body that's assessing your performance here, one of the big things they're going to look at 
is, you know, if you sat down with a hundred clients in a given time frame, are you consistent in your application? That is, 95 of those clients or 98 of those clients were fully possessed of their faculties. Well, did we see some comment about that in your notes? And then maybe for the two that weren't, did we see that you followed a policy or procedure to identify that? So again, we want to have consistent practices here that a court would look at and say, you know what? Yeah, we're convinced that for that one person where there's a difficult question in front of us, you did treat that person the same way as you treated the other 99 out of 100 clients or whatever the numbers are. Okay, I hope you'll join us again in a couple weeks time when our guest will be Eric talking about business valuation. This is another interview with a non-financial advisor, but again, one of these tools in your toolbox that I think is quite useful for the financial advisor. So Eric is a certified business valuator here in Edmonton, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about some of the principles of business valuation, but also where the financial advisor and client and business valuator sort of meet up. And I learned a lot in my conversation with Eric. That was quite a good discussion to have. Enjoy your continued studies, and thank you very much for joining us. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast. <laughs>